We'll be turning our Bibles to uh, Job in chapter 32 uh, to 37 <coughs> uh, to consider uh, this monologue, a, a new grammatical type uh, in the, the book of Job, a wonderfully structured book uh, rising up to the, the glorious climax that we'll study uh, in our last studies next Sabbath day. Uh, we know what's coming uh, this week. We know there'll be plenty of dialogue uh, by the, the, le- the potential leaders uh, of the, the Tory party, the potential new prime minister. Uh, they'll reflect on Truss's policies. Uh, they'll set out their own policies and positions uh, for tax and for the NHS, uh, for energy sources and pricing. There'll be TV debates, perhaps. There'll be social media interest and communication. There'll be interviews uh, with uh, reporters and TV presenters to, to set forth uh, to uh, those who have the, the right uh, to vote uh, regarding the new leader uh, of the Tory party, their policies, their understanding of the problems uh, facing our nation, their suggested solutions uh, to these problems, the answers uh, which they've been boiling and cooking in their minds and hearts and, and rooms and, and meetings to present then to the nation. And this is what's been going on in the book of Job. Uh, There have been these people analysing his circumstances, seeking to provide an answer and a solution to his problem. And Job has been resenting their input. He's been disagreeing strongly and profusely that he is a man who is innocent. And this calamity has come on him. And he doesn't know why. They can't accept this. In their thinking, in their world, they were locked in to this singular understanding of suffering that it is the result of sin. And the bigger the suffering, the bigger the sin that must have occurred. And Job is strongly refuting this. And we recognize Job's problem because at the very beginning of the book, Not only does the writer, but God himself in the 8th verse of the first chapter give those four descriptions of Job's righteousness. That he feared God, that he was an upright man, that he turned away from evil, that he was blameless. So there is a man, like the man in our psalm. Perhaps your own experience reflects this. A follower of God. One who trusted in God and honoured God and and, and delighted in him. And yet suddenly this deep tragedy has come upon him. So we come to Elihu and we we spend time considering his response to, to Job. And what do you think of Elihu? The jury is still out on how we should understand Elihu in chapter 32 to 37. Job ends his soliloquy in chapter 31 by 12 assertions of his uprightness. You see them beginning with with the word if. So verse 5 is the first one. If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit. Let me be weighed in a just balance. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, then let me sow and another eat. Twelve times Job announces a sin and then asserts that he is not guilty of that wrong that he speaks of. That's 
how his soliloquy ends in chapter 31. And now Elihu responds to that. His name means he is my God, Elihu. Probably, as we said, a descendant of Abraham. A young man. But now he speaks. Calvin has a really, really useful way of understanding Job's speech and Job's friend's speech. And though he, he writes about 500 years ago, he, he puts it like this. Job had a good argument, but expressed it badly. His friends had a bad argument, but expressed it well. And that's what we're struggling with. Job perhaps goes over the top at times, speaking about his uprightness and righteousness. The man is hurting, breaking, down at the very depths of suffering. And he's speaking out of agony and pain and unimaginable affliction. And there are the cool-headed friends responding to him. And so we can understand how Job, he had that good argument but expressed it badly. His friends sitting outside of all the affliction. They had a bad argument, but were expressing it with, with reason and, and a cool head. Expressing it well. Elijah, Elihu, he has listened to these arguments and reasonings and response of Job. And, and he does move on the discussion a bit. He brings in a, a new argument, one which was mentioned by Eliphaz in chapter 5 and verse 17, that, that suffering can be a, a chastisement. And he enlarges on this uh, within uh, these chapters, and we'll, we'll come to think of that uh, this evening. So what are we to think of Elihu then? Well, David Jackson, in an excellent book, Crying Out for Vindication, he argues that he's not to be listened to at all by us. We're to read the chapters, they're part of God's word, but we are not to assume into ourselves the arguments that he presents. He says that he's an angry young man, immature, his arguments are to be dismissed. George Philip, who was an outstanding Scottish preacher, he claims he should not even have opened his mouth. So that is, that is one approach to Elihu. And, and maybe that's the approach that you'll arrive at at the end of this uh, sermon. And, and if you're, you're, you're wondering, what, what did Elihu actually say in chapter 32? That is a taste of what his speeches are like. He is verbose. He talks a lot and doesn't seem to say very much. We'll discover that his arguments are perhaps weak and flawed. Others consider him to be full of self-importance. In this 32nd chapter, for example, he refers to I 19 times. He's self-opinionated. He has a sense of his own importance. And perhaps the reason... Why he's not mentioned by God in chapter 42 is not because he was legitimate in what he said, but maybe it's more likely that he was irrelevant in what he said. 
He's not worth mentioning. Again, no one responds to this young man. And, and we've been in meetings uh, when someone ha- has gone on, someone who doesn't know what they're talking about, and at the end, no one makes a comment at all. It's just not worth responding to their argument. And perhaps that is what's happening uh, with Elihu here. I think Derek Thomas, and I've been recommending his commentary to you in the Welland series, gets his position right. Some would argue that this section about Elihu is transposed into the book of Job by later editors. He rejects that position, and rightly so. But he argues that Elihu's arguments are flawed, and I hope to show you that this evening as we come to think of them. And they have to be flawed. And the other three friends' arguments have to be flawed as well. And Job's argument has to have flaws in it also because none of them, none of the five of them, knew about chapter 1 and 2. They didn't know about Satan's involvement. They didn't know about Satan's challenge to God. And so they cannot fully and ably understand the situation and explain the suffering completely. So Elihu's arguments then, I would argue, are are flawed. And so your question obviously is then, why why spend time looking at these chapters 32 to 37? And well, one reason is that they are are in, in the Bible and that if your minister doesn't try to explain to you what they might mean, then who else is going to try and explain to you what they might mean? And so these words are here. God could have compressed them. He could have omitted them and merely put a line in that Elihu, a fourth speaker, spoke to Job. But but they're here in six chapters in God's holy and inerrant word. And so we read them and we reflect on them in our lives and as a congregation here this evening. But a second reason for considering these is surely got to be that we can learn what not to say to someone who is suffering. That we will consider Elias' arguments, that we will see the flaws in his arguments, and that as we leave church this evening, we will go away saying, well, I never want to say that to someone who is suffering. One of the obvious lessons right at the very outset of this section about Elihu is not to speak when we're angry. Four times it says in verses one to four and the one to five in the, in the prologue uh, to his speech that he burned with anger. And one of the the great lessons, and perhaps George Philip was absolutely right for this very reason, not just that he got arguments wrong, but that he was filled with anger when he spoke. He speaks of himself, we read in verse 19, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. He was so angry with Job and his defensiveness. He was so angry with the three friends and their inability to silence and answer Job. Here's a young man filled with anger. What a lesson for us in our homes and families, in our marriages, with our children, as a congregation, in our workplace this week, 
not to talk when we're angry. Martin Lloyd-Jones reflects on, on anger in his commentaries on Ephesians, and this is what he says. The moment you are controlled by your temper, you're no longer able to reason. You're no longer able to think. You can no longer give a balanced judgment for you're altogether biased on one side and against the other. And then he goes on. Is there anything that leads to more trouble than anger? Things said in anger and in a bitter moment, you would almost cut your tongue off if you could to get them back. And sometimes, though forgiven, they leave permanent wounds and scars. And right at the outset, here's a, a lesson for us. Not to speak. Not to engage in an argument when we're angry. So let's think of the four speeches of Elihu. Uh, relatively briefly, I recognize some of the young people have been, been uh, at the CY weekend and uh, sleep's not uh, high on the agenda at the CY weekends. So we'll try and, and capture uh, capture what, what Elihu's been saying. So chapter 33 uh, is his first argument uh, to Job. And what his thesis here is, his point here is, his argument is that, Job, you're suffering, not as your friends have argued, uh, for your past sins, but you're suffering to prevent you from future sins. This is his argument. This affliction on you, Job, this bereavement, this loss of your wealth, your, your, your family, your, all that you've built up, this is to prevent you from future sins. He says this in verse 17, it seems, that God may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. And the idea of his argument seems to be that there's a man and if he went on the current course that he was on, he would end up committing some sin, perhaps some great outrageous sin, but God steps in with an affliction to prevent him to turn, verse 17, the man aside from the deed that he intended to do if he was allowed to, to go on in his life and, and carry on the road that he was traveling. So Job, Elihu says, I, I disagree with your three friends that you're suffering for some sin in the past. Your suffering is to prevent you from some sin that you might commit in the future. He begins uh, his his argument here by citing from Job uh, in verse n number 8 and to 11. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean. There is no iniquity in me. This is his starting point, the blamelessness of, of Job. Perhaps he, he over-eggs Job's position. Job never claimed to be sinless. He acknowledges uh, within his speeches that, that he is a sinner, but he's reflecting God's assessment of him in chapter 1 that he's blameless, that he's upright, that he fears God, that he turns away from evil. Job was an upright man. And so Elihu reflects on this and says, well, Job, what you've suffered then might not be for what you've done in your life, 
what might be to prevent what you might have done in your life. That he may turn man aside from his deed. What do you think of that argument? That explanation of suffering. Imagine going to someone and and saying that to them. Here's an option for why you're suffering. The problem I have with it is I don't find that approach in the Bible. God's chastisements are not on the innocent. God's chastisements are, are on the guilty. It's on sins that, that have been done. Errors that have been committed. Not to prevent some possible, probable sin in the future. Parents might sit down with their young teenage children and, and talk with them. Talk with them about physical relationships and talk with them about romantic relationships. And while the young person might squirm in the seat as their mom talks to them about those things, the approach of the parent is a fence at the top of the cliff rather than an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. It's a preventative conversation, but it's not a punishment. It's not a chastisement. And so this argument, this approach of of Elihu coming, this this young man with a a new idea, a new concept, well, well, here, Job, you've rejected those other explanations. Here's a fresh one for you. It seems, as we look at the, the full panoply of Scripture, that this approach is flawed. It is not found in God's ways. The second speech then in chapter number 34, Elihu has the position that God is good to the righteous and he judges the wicked. That in this life, God rewards the righteous and he condemns the wicked. Again, he has a quotation from Job in in verses 5 to 9, which it seems that he he misunderstands. uh, And once again, he exaggerates uh, Job's position, uh, putting Job in the position of claiming that that it has been, uh, in verse number 9, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. And Job has never said that. That was the position that Satan was claiming Job was in at the very beginning. But Job has never gone there. If he went there, the contest would have been over. But by God's grace, Job never got to that point. Job's position has been that good and bad come to the righteous and to the wicked. He said this earlier in chapter 21. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Think of Vladimir Putin at 70 years of age. We could ask of him, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? That was Job's position in chapter 21. He's looking at the godless. He's looking at the unrighteous. And yet they seem to prosper. They're mighty in power. Job also has spoken. And chapter 9 he has said, It is all one. Therefore I say, He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. 
Think of those in Kiev, Christians and non-Christians, losing businesses, losing property. Job's observation stands strong. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. That was Job's position. As he looked on in life, there's the righteous and they're suffering. There's the wicked and they're prospering. Sometimes they're afflicted. Sometimes they prosper the righteous, and the wicked. But Elihu, he's rooted, he's contained, he's he's welded on to this singular understanding of suffering. That it's only the wicked who suffer, and the righteous always prosper. And so we have in this 34th chapter uh, his, his words, He says in verse 11, according to the work of a man, God will repay him. (coughs) He says in verse number 17, shall one who hates justice govern? Elihu's position is that the person who is good will prosper. The person who is wicked will be destroyed. I remember on one occasion when my father was unwell that a man from a local church took him aside and and told him that there must be some secret sin in his life that that underlay his suffering. This was Elihu's position here. If you're good, you will be healthy. You will prosper. If you're wicked you will be destroyed. Who said these words then? All day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. It was the psalmist in Psalm 73, the godly follower. So that's the the second argument uh, which Elihu has. The third argument is in chapter 35. And here he has two positions that he sets out uh, for Job. Uh, Once again, citing from Job's uh, words in verse number 2 to 5. Do you say it is my right before God that you ask what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? So Elihu's position in this chapter is that God is great and, and distant from the actions of mankind And a second argument about unanswered prayer. That unanswered prayer is the fault of the offerer of the prayer. So he argues, first of all, that that God is great. That he is far, that he is above all, that he is distant from us. His argument is that why would God interact with the deeds of man. Why Job is is claiming that that he is innocent, that he is blameless, that he is upright before God. And Elihu's argument is God is so exalted, he's so high. Why would he be interested or care in the moral behavior of an individual? 
But again, we we know that that is a, a flawed argument that God does intervene in time, that God commands us to be holy. And even though our circumstances might be filled with suffering and affliction, we are called to serve and honor God. But he has this teaching then on on unanswered prayer in the second part of this. He says in verse 13, Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. He's arguing that Job has prayed to God, but prayed in the wrong way, that there's been faults in his intercession, that he has spoken unjustly about God, that he has prayed from a heart which is not humbled and right with God. And that is the reason for Job's prayers being unanswered and his circumstances not being changed. In verse 9, because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out, they call for help because of the arm of the mighty, but none says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? God does not hear an empty cry. But there's other reasons, aren't there, why prayer is not answered. Here is Elihu once again locking himself in in this simplistic understanding and interpretation of Job's condition. Yes, Job, you've been praying to God. You've been asking God to meet with you, to hear you, to give you an answer. But your prayers are all wrong, he says. And that's why God is not hearing you or rescuing you from your circumstances. But that's not the only explanation for unanswered prayer, is it? Sometimes there is no explanation. Amy Carmichael, who served God so so wonderfully in, in other lands, when she was extremely unwell, Prayers of the church worldwide were being offered for her recovery. But she didn't recover. John L. Gerardu, a southern Presbyterian theologian, uh, he returned to Charleston uh, after the the army had been defeated and the, the congregation in Charleston was greatly disappointed. They'd been praying to God that their army would have a victory and that they would gain the, the southern independence. And he addresses the people so disappointed with their prayers not being answered. And he said to them, It will in time be made conspicuous to you that benefits were withheld for the bestowal of greater. What an angle he placed in it. That here's another explanation for unanswered prayer. It's not the fault of the offerer of the prayer in this case, he was arguing. It's not completely a mystery perhaps in this case. Perhaps it is God is denying you this particular prayer because he has something far greater to give to you. The fourth speech of Elihu in chapter 36 and 37, he argues here that suffering is God's discipline. That when we suffer, God is chastening us for the wrongs that have been done. 
In verses 8 to 12, he sets out this argument if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, chapter 36, verse 9. Then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from their iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. Discipline, he says, is the explanation for your affliction, Job. God is speaking to you. There's, and again, he's slipping into the, the, the argument of the three friends here. He's moved off some of his other positions and he's complying with them. God is calling you back from some sin. And if you'll just turn from that sin, you will live a life of pleasantness. And in some cases, this is what God is doing. He is chasing us to to bring us back from some sin and set us again in his ways and his blessing. But it's not the only explanation for someone's suffering. David was hounded by Saul for years, yet described as the man after God's own heart. The blind man in Jerusalem The the disciples wondered if he had sinned or his parents sinned. And Jesus said it was neither. It was another reason, another explanation for the suffering of this man who'd been blind from birth. Christ suffered throughout his earthly life with persecution, opposition, crucifixion. Paul suffered as a servant of the gospel. These were not chastisements on these individuals. There were other explanations for their suffering. But once again, Elihu has this tunnel vision. This is the explanation for your suffering, Job. And once more, his argument is flawed and doesn't meet the heart of Job. Or interpret the circumstances aright. Elihu. Flawed in his arguments, I would argue. Defective in his understanding of suffering. But what about suffering? Is there anything that rises from these chapters that that we can retain and use and apply. Well, suffering can reveal our true character. Derek Thomas comments that Job was not afflicted because of his sinfulness, but his afflictions brought out the latent sinfulness that was there. Perhaps we've experienced that. Life has been nice, enjoyable, pleasurable, and suddenly a tragedy comes and we have thoughts about God that we could never have imagined we would have. And while the tragedy hasn't come for any big sin in our life, yet that affliction has revealed to us the sinfulness that is latent in our hearts. Our suffering can reveal our true character. And these chapters perhaps also reveal that suffering can teach us about God's character. Martin Luther said that I never knew the meaning of God's word until I was afflicted. 
I have always found it one of my best schoolmasters. And here was Job. He didn't know a lot about the incomprehensibility of God before this. He was successful. He was respected. He was looked up to read the previous soliloquy of the children honoring him in the street. He was a leader. He was an elder. He he was a prince within his community. But now he he, he recognizes the greatness of the God he worships, the incomprehensibility of God. Why won't he speak to him? Why won't he explain what's going on? That there's things far beyond his, his massive mind that's happening here. And suffering can teach us not only about our own character, but about God's character as well. And lastly, suffering can teach us about the true nature of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And we walk through the dark night of suffering by faith, not by sight. We're not to judge God and his ways by what's around us, but we walk by faith. And here, Job, as he passed through this trial, was taught about himself, was taught about his God, was taught about faith. And so when we speak to someone in suffering, let's avoid the trite, tunnel-visioned arguments of Elihu. Let's speak with care and humility, the compassion of Christ. And when we suffer, Let's hold on to not the flawed arguments of those like Elihu, but to the sure and flawless promises of God.